go ahead and be seated here in house. And as you are, I want to welcome those of you joining us uh, online, wherever you may be, as well as if you are new here today. Welcome to Crossroads Church. Uh, it is a good day to be together, to bring worship uh, to Jesus as we gather. Uh, just an excitement and expectation of what God is doing and moving through us. If we haven't met, my name is Matt Manning, and I am the senior pastor here at Crossroads Church. And today we are wrapping up our three-week series, as Chris said, in anger. Uh, in a series that we've been calling Why So Angry, that we have spent the last couple of weeks looking at anger because let's just be real, the whole world feels like it is angry, doesn't it? And it feels like it's growing in anger uh, day by day. To many of us, the world feels uh, meaner than it has in recent years, hasn't it? Like we live in this environment now that is emotionally charged. We live in an era of 24 uh, seven you know, news, cable news networks where the prevailing wisdom of the world is, is that you're not with me, you're against me. That I just read a study this week of uh, when it comes to stress levels that are all times high for Americans, particularly when it comes to relationships, uh, medical, finances, like we're at all time high when it comes to our stress levels. And very few of us even know, even know how to deal with the stressors. Like we've never had any ability to cope with the stress levels that we have experienced uh, in this day and age. That politically, many people would say it's as bad as it's ever been. Kind of show of hands, how many of you would agree it's as bad politically as it's ever been? Yeah, most of you in this room just look around. Well, at least I want to like free you from that last one a little bit. Um, this heightened intensity that we're seeing has really just been like our American history. Like it's just been repeated. How many of you, show of hands again, have ever seen the musical Alexander Hamilton? Any Hamilton fans in here? Yeah, quite a few of you. Uh, if you've seen the musical Hamilton, kind of the pinnacle of the, uh, of the musical is when Alexander Hamilton is shot by Aaron Burr. And Aaron Burr was, anybody know? the sitting vice president of the United States. Like in our American history, we have a sitting vice president murdering one of the founding fathers of our nation. And then you go to May of 1856 in the halls of Congress, that was the day where our nation was on the verge of civil war and a senator from Massachusetts named Charles Sutner got up and he delivered a passionate plea on the evils of slavery. As he finished, he sat down and a senator from South Carolina named Preston Brooks stood up and Preston Brooks ran across uh, the Congress and uh, pummeled Sumner to the very verge of death. That in our nation's history, it is recorded as the breakdown of civil discourse, I would say so. And so at least right now, at least right now, we don't have the vice president killing people or you know, Congress people beating other Congress people. And yet at the same time, at the same time, it's hard not to feel the tension in our nation right now. That we are polarized on every issue, on every matter, on everything, and it seems to be growing worse by the day. And in an angry world, in a society like ours, culture doesn't need an echo chamber of itself. It needs an alternative to itself. But unfortunately, far too often because of the sway of the world, the sin that indwells all of us, that meanness is, that is from the world is brought into here. The people who profess to be the church. And tragically, our society, the very people who are to make Jesus known by our love and by the way that we live at times can often be characterized as the angriest, the harshest, the most quarrelsome people on the planet. 
that it's only kind to respond, or it's only, it's only human nature to respond in kind. That is, that we play like eye for an eye, that when someone does something to you, that you return the favor by doing something similar to them. It's only human to respond in kind. But Jesus, as we open up the pages of Scripture, actually requires more of his church than simply what is human. That he calls us to respond in kindness. Now, a lot of us don't actually think of it in terms like this, but as we open up these pages of Scripture and we see the angriness, the meanness of the world in which the Bible was written, the response for Christians, for those who, who are followers of Jesus, their response was called to be kind, that we are to respond in kindness, with kindness. Now, I know that even as I say that, there's a little bit of tension in the room. Like, there's this collective sarcastic eye roll. Like, yeah, man, we'll just kill the world with kindness. Like, you know, like when it comes to our society and our culture, kindness is kind of small. It's kind of trite. And yet, and yet, if you're there with me, like, I don't want you to, like, check out of this sermon early. Like, I want you to hang with me because as we look at kindness, I think it's going to be different than what most of us understand, what most of us might expect. That Rick, what happened? Oh, there, I'm back. All right. Biblically speaking, kindness, uh, when it comes to kindness, is quite significant uh, in the scriptures. That while it may be kind of trite or small in our culture, it's not so in God's economy. It's quite significant in God's economy. That as we open up the pages of scripture, we see in the early church, specifically in Acts, where kindness isn't just mentioned, but it's actually celebrated. As we get into season two of Acts, we're going to see this time and time again where this, where this kindness is celebrated in the early church. One of the earliest moments is in Acts chapter 9 or 10, when this guy named Cornelius calls for Peter to come visit him. And Peter goes out of his way to come and visit Cornelius. And as he, do, as he does, Luke tells us that, that, it was a, that it was a kind moment. It was this like celebrated moment. That we have text after text in the Bible defining for us Christian conduct as, as kind. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 12, Paul writes it like this. He says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. That's who you are. That you are chosen by God. You are loved. You are holy. Paul says, have compassionate hearts. And be filled with, there it is, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. That we turn the, the page to 2 Timothy, where Paul is, is writing to this young pastor named Timothy. He's actually the pastor of the church in Ephesus. And he's, and he's writing to him, and he says, when it comes to pastors, when it comes to Christian leaders, that Christian leaders are to be kind to everyone. They are to be kind to everyone as a Christian leader. We open up to Galatians, and in Galatians chapter 5, we see that kindness is this kind of virtue, this Christian virtue. That Paul's talking about what does it look like to, to be in the world. And he says that there's some people who are in the world and they're living to the flesh. That is, that they've given themselves over to sin. And he says, you can tell who these people are. And he lists a whole bunch of ways that you can tell the people who are giving themselves over to sin, who aren't Christians, who aren't followers of Jesus. And he says, one of the ways, one of the ways that you can know if someone's not walking with Jesus is because they're fit, uh, they're prone to fits of anger. That they give themselves over to anger. But Paul says, that's not you. Like, you're a Christian. You're a follower of Jesus. He says, you, you live your lives differently, that you are to walk in the Spirit. You're to be defined by these virtues that are listened for us in, in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, where Paul writes these, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, 
goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. For there's no law against these, Paul says. In the great chapter on love, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, which is almost requested at every single wedding ever to be read, Paul talks about love, and the first thing that he says is that love is patient and it is kind. We turn to the book of Titus, and Paul's writing uh, to this guy named Titus, and, and as he's writing this, we're told that our salvation is through God's loving kindness. Titus writes in Titus chapter 3, verses 3 and 4, that we were once foolish, hating on one another. Sound familiar to the culture you live in? But when the goodness and loving kindness, there it is, of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. And then we as believers, we look towards the future of our eternity and we have this, we have this hope of what eternity is going to be like. And Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 7, he writes these words, so that in the coming age, that is the eternity that's to come, in this coming age that he might show us the immense riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. That while our culture may look at kindness as small and trite, when it comes to kindness, biblically speaking, it is a pretty big deal. That when the Bible talks about kindness, it is, it is not tribes, which makes Paul's words in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 31 and 32, all the more significant for us. That if you've been a part of this series over the last couple of weeks, and you know that we've taken a deep dive into these two verses, because these are the go-to verses when it comes to what the Bible has to say about anger and the way that we understand anger. And in these verses, Paul writes these words. By now, you're probably familiar with them, but here's what Paul writes. He says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. And just in case I missed it, also malice. Like have it put away from you. Verse 32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. That as Paul is, is writing this, he says that when it comes to being angry, there's an actually an alternative lifestyle here. That you don't have to walk around angry. You don't have to give yourself over to anger. That you don't have to be fit, uh, prone to fits of rage in your life. Like there's, there's another way to live. And Paul begins to set up this contrast. And he says there's people in this world who walk around angry and bitter all the time. And there's those people who, who are kind, tenderhearted, forgiving. Last week, as we came together, we looked at the significance of, of the word forgiveness and what it means to forgive and how really when we come to understand forgiveness, that that's the key to healing when it comes to our anger. Today, we're going to tackle our understanding of kindness. Now, throughout history, because of verses like these that we just read, that we just ran through, Christians have celebrated kindness as like this, uh, this heavenly virtue. And yet we live in a day that not only makes kind of light of kindness, but actually totally misunderstands it. That we say things like, um, like you know, uh, kindness is free. We celebrate random acts of kindness in the world. That we think of kindness like as a synonym to niceness. That, that kindness maybe you would say is, is niceness without context. And of course in a mean and angry world, it is pleasant to be surprised by a stranger's niceness, free and as random as it, as it may seem. 
Sure, like hand that stuff out everywhere. Like, like put it out like glitter at a cheerleading camp. Like a mean world needs people who are nice. However, however, when it comes to the biblical understanding of kindness, kindness is not niceness. That kindness is not niceness, and it's certainly not random, and it's certainly not free. For the Christians reading Paul's words here, the vision of kindness is far deeper, far more significant than what our world understands. The Greek word for kindness is Christos. Christos. It's kind of a fun word to say because you've got to really roll the R. And what Christos does is it paints a picture for us of biblical kindness that is separate from the way that we typically think of kindness in our world. That Christos, or, or kindness, for the Greek speaker, for the Greek thinker, was doing something, a profound good, for someone else and not expecting anything in return. It was to do something so over the top, so profoundly good, so extremely good to another person, and then to expect nothing in return. For the Greek, that was what kindness was. But for the Christian, it even went deeper than that. See, Christians' understanding of kindness was not just some like common courtesy or this virtue in a vacuum, but a surprising response to mistreatment and to hurts. For a Christian, kindness is a surprising response to mistreatment and hurts. To do something so profoundly good, to do something so over-the-top good to a person who has mistreated you or, or hurt you, and then expect nothing in return. If you've been here with us the last couple of weeks, I, I hopefully you remember that when it comes to anger, that anger really is the emotion of injustice. That's what anger is. That anger is this, is this emotion that we feel deeply in our hearts when injustice has happened. That every single time that you feel anger, it's because something's been taken from you. Something that you used to have that you no longer have. Something you used to have that someone took from you. Whether it's because of their negligence or their malice or their indifference. That people have, have hurt you. That they've taken something from you. And you roll that over in your mind time and time again, don't you? Just replay that over and over and over. And the more that you play it, the more angry you get because it's not right, it's wrong, and justice has not been served. That anger is the emotion of injustice. It's the anger of mistreatment. It's the anger of hurt. And kindness is the virtue that rises above our anger that says that I'm going to do something so profoundly good I'm going to do something so extremely good to the person who's hurt me or mistreated me that I'm not going to return in kind. That is, I'm not going to seek vengeance here. I'm not going to wish evil. I'm not going to strike at them. But instead, I'm going to choose to forgive them. I mean, come on, this is not the kindness that we were taught as kids, was it? That this is not how we typically think of kindness. That when we begin to understand this kind of kindness in context, it's not random, and certainly, certainly it's not free. That a couple of weeks ago, I shared with you that I was in Okaboji and I was at this Bible conference, and, and while I was there, I kind of went to the back, and I was checking out their bookstore, and they had this whole, like, basket of stickers that you could put on your windows or your, you know, water bottles. I'm kind of into that. Like, when I visit someplace, I like to get a sticker and slap it on my water bottle. And so I'm kind of, like, thumbing through the basket, looking at things, and I came across, I came across this sticker. It said this, that kindness isn't free, sprinkle that stuff everywhere. And I was like, No! No, it's not, right? Like, like kindness is this counterintuitive response to meanness and hurt in our world. It's not free. It's costly. And so 
Honest to God, I took every one of those stickers out and I buried them in the bottom. Like nobody's buying those stickers on my watch. Like nobody, right? The point that Paul's making to the Ephesian church here is that kindness, the way that Christians are to think about kindness, biblically speaking kindness, is not merely external changes of manners, but it's the internal change of the heart. That Paul writes to us, be kind to one another, tender-hearted. That kindness is tender-hearted. In other words, if the heart, if your heart is hard, if your heart is hard on the inside, and yet on the outside, you're able to portray manners, you're able to be nice, you're able to be polite, that's not kindness, biblically speaking. That biblical kindness is tender-hearted. And the idea behind tenderheartedness is that our insides are easily touched. Think of it like when you work out. Like this summer, I've completely lost my discipline. All of summer has been a party and my body looks like it. And so there's this competition going on at the, at the gym and I got into it. And so I'm like working my butt off, trying to get myself back in, into shape. And I swear to you, if we do one more lunch, I'm just gonna cry real tears, all right? That's where I'm at. Like every day I just come home tired and I'm sore. And so I have these teenage boys and they just walk around and they just poke me all the time. They go, does that hurt, does that hurt, does that hurt? Yes, stop, right? Like my muscles are tender. When the muscle of your heart is tender, it's easily affected, isn't it? It feels deeply, it feels quickly. Paul says that's the type of, of kindness, that's the type of response that kindness demands, that's the type of kindness that you should have in your life. And when we stop and, and think about it, particularly in light of our anger, it's kind of remarkable that Paul even says this, because this is command language. Paul says, you be kind, be tenderhearted. Now, I don't know about you, but what's remarkable about this is that you can't command tenderheartedness. Like, I just don't wake up in the morning and go, oh, today is the day I'm gonna be tenderhearted. Today I'm gonna feel deeply. Like I'm turning on the water in my kitchen. Like, it doesn't work that way. The tenderheartedness is this deep character quality that's developed in us over time, to which we go maybe in frustration, Paul, how? Like, like, if you just can't wake up and make this happen, like, like, how do I be kind to the people in my life in such a heartfelt way where it's not like superficial or like socially cool, like just sprinkle that stuff everywhere. Like, no, like, like how do we do it real? Like, what's that look like, Paul? Well, the answer is actually hinted to us by Paul in verse 31. And it all has to do with the verb tense, the form of the verb here. Now, I know that all of our kids are going back to school this week, and so just wake with me as we talk English, right? Like, the, like when it comes to verbs and whether they're active or passive, right? Like that's important stuff. So let's read verse 31 and see if you see it. So verse 31 says this, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander, here's the verb, be put away from you along with all malice. Did you catch it? Be put away from you. The verb here is passive. And if the verb is passive here, it means that we cannot do it in ourselves. That it is not within us to be able to pull this off. That there's nothing that we can do to make it happen. That if it's left to ourselves, we will no more be able to get the bitterness and anger out of our lives than me picking up Ryan's guitar and playing Amazing Grace for you. Like it's just not gonna happen. The bitterness and anger must be taken from us. Your anger must be taken away from you. 
that Paul seems to believe that there's someone else at work here, that there's a power that we have access to that actually can rid the anger, who can take away the anger from us and in doing so replace it with a tenderheartedness for us that our kindness flows from. And we know what that power is. We actually already read the verse in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, when Paul says here, have this, this is the fruit of the Spirit. Here's the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. See, if the Spirit of God does not come into our lives, if the Holy Spirit isn't present within us to do supernatural work, we may be able to pull off being polite. People may qualify us as being nice, that we might have good manners in this world, but that poison will remain in us, and as we've said the last couple of weeks, that once anger roots itself in bitterness, that will kill your soul. It will kill your soul. Paul says, you need to let it be taken away. I mean, this is a plea for the Holy Spirit to come in and to do his work, to remove the old out of us, and to clothe us with new. And our posture should not be that I'm trying to overcome my bitterness and anger on my own that our posture should be, that I'm looking to the Holy Spirit to bear his fruit in my life and root this out, to root this out. It's why last week was so important for us to wrap our minds around forgiveness because it's only truly when we understand forgiveness that we can live out what Paul's commanding us to live out here that we have to understand that our healing comes ultimately from our forgiveness and that our forgiveness comes from the kindness of God that our forgiveness comes from the kindness of God, this surprising moment where God looks at the mistreatment and the hurt that we caused upon him because of our sin. And he does this surprising act where he doesn't meet us in kind, but rather where he looks at upon us with compassion, a tender heart, and says, I choose to forgive you. You don't owe me any more. That's what develops tenderheartedness in us. When we begin to understand what God has done for us, where we come to him in our sin and the massive amount of mistreatment and hurt that we've caused in his life because of my sin, and then he looks upon me in kindness and says, forgiven? Like, wow. That all of a sudden our hearts begin to understand what tenderheartedness is all about. That character quality begins to be developed in us. And with that understanding, we as believers don't walk around angry in this world. But rather, we look, at, we look at people with the same compassionate eyes, the same compassionate heart that God looked upon us. And we choose to forgive those who have hurt and mistreated us. It's why only truly forgiven people understand forgiveness, and it's why only truly forgiven people can be kind and tenderhearted. The virtue of kindness begins with forgiveness, but it doesn't stop there. That if we're actually to like live this out in our real lives, it means there's some other things that we need to start to adopt in our lives. Like if this is gonna become practical for us to live it out, it certainly needs to begin with forgiveness, but there's other aspects in which we need to put into our lives to begin to, 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 look, to show what it looks like to be kind in the world. And so I've just come up with three of them. I'm sure there's like 103, but I'm just gonna give you three today that I think are really important, all right? Number one is this, is that believers set the example. Believers set the example on how to differ with others without demonizing them. That when we understand kindness, believers set the example of how to differ with others without demonizing them. 
One of my favorite passages in all of scripture is 1 Peter chapter 2. I love 1 Peter chapter 2. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 17, Paul, or Peter writes these words. He says, he says, honor everyone always. Respect everyone always. Give dignity to people always. Why? Because what Peter understands is that every single one of us is created in the image of God. And that in and of itself has significance and worth far beyond anything that we can ever imagine. And every single person that you will ever rub shoulders with, who you, in the future, in the past, in the present, that they are made in the image of God, that they are image bearers, that they are image bearers in God, and that they have worth and significance far beyond what we can imagine. And so, we don't sling insults. We don't go about demonizing people. We don't shout, let's go Brandon. I mean, goodness gracious, how little does the image of God matter to us that we can so quickly demonize people who are made in the image of God to take away their worth and their value at a soul level. Peter says that we live with a radical kindness a radical kindness, so that even when the world looks at us and accuses us of evil, that they will also see the good deeds that we did, the extremely good deeds to people in our life with no expectation of return. And they will see those good deeds and they will bring glory to God. Believers set the example. They set the example on how to differ from others without demonizing them. Number two, that believers must set the example. We must set the example of how to have spirited conversations without drawing blood. There's an author named Katherine Johnson, and years ago she wrote a book called Lucky in Love. She was a PhD who looked at um, what I would call like delirious happy couples, all right? And she wanted to find out like why they were so giddy, like what made them so giddy? And so she interviewed them, about 100 couples in total, and the one key learning that she saw in every single one of them was this that at some point along the way, every happy couple had come to a critical point in their relationship where they covenanted together that they would ferociously disagree, but refuse to destroy each other in the process. They could give you the time, the date, the location, where they finally established that no matter how difficult the conversation was going to be, they would not verbally attack each other. One couple wrote it like this. When we quarrel, and we will, we're not gonna do the kinds of things that will damage this relationship long-term. When we disagree, we will not draw blood. Great words for marriage, wonderful words for Christians living out the virtue of kindness that believers must set the example of how to have spirited conversations without drawing blood. Number three, believers must apologize immediately when they are wrong. When we're wrong, we have to apologize immediately instead of denying or even doubling down. Listen, over the last 10 years, since 2012, 30 million more Americans have affiliated with the religious unaffiliated. Another way to say that is in the last 10 years, 30 million Americans have looked at the way that Christians lived, the way that we have articulated our faith in our life, and God, mm, not interested. Curious, isn't it? of a group of people such as us that are to live our lives with such love and kindness that people ask the question, who is this God that we worship? That 30 million Americans look at the way we live and go, hmm, no, not really. 
And in fact, I think that we could argue and come to terms and agree that oftentimes when the world looks at Christians, that they would describe us with words that are opposite of kindness. They would use like labels like bigots to describe us. They would maybe look at us as angry as we protest with our signs. Maybe some of them would call us malicious, that many of them would call us hypocrites. See, in America, the church has got a problem. And the problem is not that the world doesn't think that we're gonna mess up. They know that we're going to. The problem is that when we do mess up, we pretend like we didn't. I mean, come on, just imagine for a moment that instead of a room full of believers, that we were all unbelievers listening to a sermon about kindness. And we looked at our Christian neighbors and our Christian friends and our Christian coworkers. And we saw these believers proclaiming this kind, tender-hearted love of God who forgives all sins. And then in their lives, in their lives, they actively refuse that they even need it. I mean, it's just screwing up our witness that when we begin to walk with kindness, understanding the forgiveness in our lives and the compassion of God, that we don't double down when we're wrong. We don't pretend it didn't happen. That we should be the quickest people in the world to apologize. See, when it comes to our anger, the anger that's in our lives, Paul says, you gotta, you gotta root that out. You gotta get that out of your lives. You gotta, that's gotta be taken from you. Allow the Spirit to come in and, and to do His work so that you can live a life that's characterized by kindness in this world, that, that, you, would be, that you would be characterized by the forgiveness that you dole out so the world would know what it looks like to walk with Jesus. So one last thing about kindness, then I'll wrap this up. Specifically, God's kindness. That in Romans chapter 2, Paul tells us that the kind of that the kindness that God has ultimately leads to our repentance. Here's what he writes. He says, or do you presume on the riches and kindness and forbearance and patience? Like, he's looking at believers and he's going, are you just presuming upon God? Or is this like real? Not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. See, if you're here today and you're even feeling a twinge just a twinge of, of, of conviction about the unkind ways that you've treated people in your life, people who are close to you, people who you love, that's the Holy Spirit compassionately, being compassionately fierce with you. And the healthiest way to respond to that kind of legitimate guilt in your life is to acknowledge that you have acted in ways that are damaging, that are damaging to the people who know you. And the only effective way to address that is to trust Jesus, to trust that Jesus saves you. That's it. Plan B. There is no plan B. That's it. So let's pray. Father, as we go through um, the understanding of kindness that you've given to us, Lord, we cannot help but feel conviction. Lord, we know in each of our lives the way that we have lived and at times where we have acted unkindly to the people in this world, people who are far away from you, people who are near you, people who are far away from us, people who are near us, people who we love, and strangers that we've just rubbed shoulders. And so Lord, in this moment, I think we just need to repent. I think you're just calling us to 
to admit where we've caused damage and to apologize and to repent from that. And so, Lord, I'm just going to give 30 seconds just for people to walk through that in their own lives. Father, what is abundantly clear is that if we're going to be an alternative to the world when it comes to anger, that we cannot do it on our own. That we need your spirit to root that out of us. And so Lord, I pray that you would do that work in us. That you would create the compassionate heart, the tender heartedness of our souls and that the result of that would be your fruit. The result of that would be that we would be a people who are walking in kindness. And so Lord, I pray for that. Lord, I pray for the people who've come today who maybe have not trusted you, who aren't believing in you. And maybe during this whole sermon, they're shaking their heads up and down and going, yeah, that's not what I see in the church. God, I pray for those today that they would not look upon us with those eyes of judgment, that they would look to you and who you call us to be. And Lord, in that, that you may speak to their soul and call them to something far greater than the life they're living, to call them to walk with you. And so Lord, I pray this in your son's name, the name of Jesus, amen. That we come together to celebrate communion and as we do today, remember the loving kindness of our God who looked upon the mistreatment and the hurt that we caused him because of his sin and did not respond in kind, but rather responded in kindness by sending his son Jesus to this earth to go to the cross where his body would be broken and where his blood would be spilt so that we might have life. What a surprising response to the mistreatment and the hurt that we called upon. And so today, we remember and we celebrate the loving kindness of God by eating the bread. And we drink from the cup knowing that as Jesus' blood was spilt, we're forgiven. If you need prayer, I'd invite you to take the opportunity. These are heavy subjects that we talk about. And so online, you can click the button. In-house, you can make your way over to the banner. We consider it a privilege to be able to pray with you and to walk with you in times like this. I'm gonna ask everybody in-house to go ahead and stand. We're gonna sing of the loving kindness of our God that he shows us day in and day out. <laughs>